0: hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this uh, School of Christ lesson. Um, Before we get involved in that, let me make some announcements, or just one announcement, basically, about our conference coming up, the CMI Bible Conference, coming up at the Research Center up on Traceridge Road. Um, That will be the 22nd through the 26th of June so uh, a couple of weeks away and we would love to see as many of you who can come i'm 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 sure we're going to have a smaller group this year uh in person because of the virus and and other um lockdown and constraints of certain states and places uh we're you know seeing a spike of things here in, in some areas but you know not that much to be worried about but anyway I'm, I'm sure those of you who are making plans to come, we're looking forward to seeing you in person. But those of you who cannot just know that we will be uh, streaming the conference, the live sessions. Um, we will be streaming those live on YouTube as we do our Sunday and Wednesday classes. So you'll be able to go to our W our CMI Web TV YouTube page and watch those uh, episodes or watch those sessions live as they're happening during the conference because we want you to still be a part of this meeting even if you can't in person so uh we we make that available to you as well if you have any questions about the conference as far as coming and staying we have some information as far as lodging Uh, this is a small area there's not a lot of options but we do have some places that uh, may be uh, okay for you to stay in for the week. I think our accommodations up at the research center are already taken. I think all four rooms are already spoken for. But there are there are places that are for rent during the week, uh, little you know, apartments and rooms and cabins and things like that. So if you have any questions, you can call us, email us, uh, email ravenbird at gmail.com and that's me r-a-b-o-n-b-y-r-d at gmail.com and I'll help you uh, as as much as possible all right with that out of the way let's get right into this because this is kind of a two-parter from from last from our last session together we were talking about the verses in Romans chapter 8 That dealt with have the spirit of bondage and the spirit of adoption and looking at what is meant or what he means by utilizing that terminology the spirit of bondage the spirit of adoption Basically, he's saying the same thing in that phraseology and that use of language as he has throughout this letter, talking about being in Adam or being in Christ, being in the flesh or being in the spirit, being married to the first man or being married to the to the new man, another man um, who who brings about fruit unto God and the true deliverance from sin and death to now being brought as a participant of or a partaker of the life of Christ within a righteousness fulfilled within. uh, He's he's using that same terminology, but just saying it in a different way. So uh, this is not some um, different thing. He's not changing gears. He's just utilizing a different way to say the same thing. And then we were talking in our last class, basically using, the spirit of bondage, and talking about that, and going through several verses, and uh, we may do that just to um, get our minds back to that. But I think in our last, <clears throat> in our last part of that, we were talking about, of course, Romans three kind of brings that all into uh, focus: the binding and subjection internally of both Jew and Gentile Romans 3 9 through 10 what then are we better than they no in no wise for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under under that's a word of subjection under seeing. as it is written there is none righteous no not one that's what the spirit of bondage uh, has done the spirit of bondage brings us into a condition a state of being that is fixed and settled under the headship of the Adamic man under the rule and dominion of Adam under the enslavement or under the master of sin and death being sold under sin sold under that inner enslavement as Paul would say Um, we talked about that and one of the verses that we dealt with uh, hebrews chapter 2 and and we dealt with a lot of them i don't want to go back into all of those but <clears throat> you can go back to that class that we have not in christ received the spirit of adoption i mean the spirit of bondage again to fear and hebrews 2 14 speaks of that fear for as much this is again hebrews 2 14 through 15 he uh For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, this is the cross, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now this fear of death is not just a bunch of people with a mindset that they were scared to die physically. It was a fear that was upon them because of the judgment and the punishment that was prescribed to all who would break the law, all who break the law worthy of death, Um, all who offend in one point are worthy of, of, of judgment under the law. This is the fear that they had because of the incessant um, breaching of the law. Not because they were just ranked sinners and trying to break the law because they were never going to do what God said. No, they were attempting to do what God said. Read Romans 7. This is the whole thing. This is the fear. This is the death. This is the turmoil and the, the, the condition of, condemnation that Paul lived under, and that's what this is talking about, uh, all of their lives under this condemning, this condemnation that brought fear of death, because under the law, those who break the law are worthy of death, but he came to break that. He came to free and deliver us. It's primarily talking about the Jews who were under that system of the Mosaic law, but also those of us who were under steel although not under the mosaic law were still bound internally to the law of sin and death that held all men whether jew or gentile he came to liberate and free all of us the word deliver there that it uses here in verse 15 that he came to deliver us from that um subjection and therefore the fear of death the word here is that he might deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Um, The word here is apoloso, which is used for instance of a wife who may desire to be released from a marriage contract to her husband. Now, if you go back to Romans seven, you'll see this very thing played out. And this is what he's talking about here. It is, Christ coming as the agent, as the means by which the wife who was subject to the first man was delivered from a marriage that, that brought forth no fruit unto God. They brought forth death and death alone. They brought forth sin, condemnation, corruptibility that did not allow the soul to, to flourish in the way the, flow, the, the soul was created to because the soul could not flourish on its own. We've talked about this. The, the soul is always a passive participant, meaning the soul has to be acted upon always by the power and strength of another for anything to be the portion of that soul. That soul has no ability to actively achieve or attain anything on its own. It has no power innately. It is dependent upon another source always. And that's the way the soul was always known by God is either subject to one man or another. And that's the way the soul is known of God is either subject to the headship of Adam or subject to the headship of Christ. Meaning the soul cannot truly serve two masters, be under the headship of two men simultaneously. It's impossible. You either are, you either are dead to the first and married to another, or you're still subject to the first husband and cannot be married to another unless you be a harlot, an adulteress. And that's the whole thing there. There has to be a clean break. And that's what most Christians do not even understand. When we teach these things, we're actually teaching that we are adulterers. What do you mean by that? Well, Because we who claim to be under now the headship of Christ, meaning that we are married to this man, Christ himself, Christ Jesus, that we are now married to him, the the wife of the lamb, partakers of the marriage supper of the lamb, because the ceremony has taken place and we have consummated a union with our beloved. To say that, and yet also, Point fingers of condemnation as if the same soul that is married to the head of who is Christ can simultaneously be under subjection in the rule of the first husband, Adam. It's impossible. And that's the whole point that he's stirring stirring up in, in the way he writes in the first of chapter seven of Romans, is letting you know it is impossible. It is not possible for you to be married to two men at the same time. It is not possible for you to have one husband and then be married to another husband. The break has to be clean between the between the wife and the first husband before the wife and the, the new man can ever be joined together. That's a clean cut. It's not well, he's, sti- he's still in the back bedroom and we argue a lot, but I got this other man and he's a, he fixes my car all the time. Isn't he good? But the bad man, he's in the back room. I've got him locked in the closet as much as possible. But every now and then he pops his head out and I have to hit it with the you know frying pan. No, that's how we preach it. Remember, the first husband dies. And that's not a process of killing the husband. It is a work of the cross that has put away the first man Adam, and has allowed the soul, the wife, to be freed from that bondage to the first man and married, therefore, to another. Now, our soul becomes um, actively dead to the first man and actively married to the new man simultaneously at the at the same moment. And that moment is called new birth. That's where the soul becomes a divorced from or dead to, that's true divorcement, dead to the first man and alive under the second man, married to the second man and bearing fruit unto God. So these are not things that we're waiting on. That's the deliverance he came to bring through his death, burial, and resurrection. And So there is also the word subject here. We are all their lives subject. The word here is a compound of en, en or echo, which is in and to hold, to hold within. And, and this is We's word studies. He said death held sinners in bondage. It held them within the context of the bondage to death and sin. That was the state of all soul, whether Jew or Gentile. That was a subjection that was a holding in and within and uh, under in complete dominion that sin and death had over that soul. But it was that subjection that was entirely eradicated by the work of the cross. Um, Then he goes on here. in Hebrews 2 and 16, and he continues this narrative. Hebrews two sixteen goes on and carries this forward. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like unto his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now notice the writer here connects this with the helping of the offspring of Abraham and the high priest coming made like unto his brothers. That means brothers, brethren in the flesh, in the flesh to make propitiation. Now go to Romans three and you see that propitiation to, to be the mercy seat. And, and that, that whole thing comes to be realized in bringing a righteousness that was claimed or, or testified under the law, but the law could not provide. Bringing that righteousness to all men who fall short of the glory of God. To bring men, all men, to the one who is declared in this work of propitiation to be righteousness, righteous and the righteousness of all who believe. There is this propitiation, this work of the grace of God in the receiving of a life that has been provided. And if you want to look at the, the whole deliverance from that bondage wherein we were held or that subjection to hold within, Romans 7, 6 keeps going after we talk about the husband and the wife. He says, now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held. We're dead to that that held us under and held us within the context of sin and death. We're dead to it. We're dead to it. Those of us who are in Christ are not dead in sin. We are dead to sin. We are not in the corruptible. We are in a life wherein there is no corruption. We are not in that realm in which condemnation reigns. We are in a life or partakers of a life in which there is no condemnation at all. That's the reality of this. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, I don't wanna stay on that forever because we need to get into this part concerning the spirit of adoption. We talked a lot about the spirit of bondage in the last class. And we dealt with Galatians 3.22, Romans 11.32, that God had consigned all to disobedience so that he may show mercy on all. And it goes into Romans uh, eight, twenty and 21, that to vanity was a creation made subject by God, not voluntarily on their own desire, but because of him who subjected the same in hope. And that hope was so that the, those subject to such vanity would finally be set free from the servitude of corruption to enjoy and possess and enjoy the liberty, the glory of the children of God, the liberty of the sons of God. So I want to talk about the spirit of adoption. Like I said, if you want to hear the whole context of the spirit of, bondage part. It's very important as we lead up to this. I think it's important. Uh, go go back to the previous, I think it's number 50 in the uh, classes. The spirit of adoption that we have received. We had not received the spirit of bondage in, in Christ. We have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, meaning the spirit of adoption is is the ushering in of a relation, a relational fellowship, a a familial relationship with God. Meaning, all the benefits of being the sons of God, the inheritance, heirs according to the promise, all of those things come into play when we're talking about those ourselves as those who are partakers now in Christ of the spirit of adoption. Now, we need to go and look at some verses in Galatians. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here, okay? Um, Because this is important. This is an important distinction that I'm going to make today, and I want you to pay close attention and search it out for yourself, okay? We're going to start in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, speaking of those who have the spirit of adoption. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, what world is he talking about? Are you talking about this, this out here that we can see and the riotings that's happening right now? We're talking about that? No. We're talking about the elements of an age, a, an, an arranged order of things for a moment in time. Verse four. But when the fullness of the time was come, now I want you to hear this time frame. Because this is going to be important because we're going to go back into chapter three and lead us to this point. But it's important we read this first. Just catch, catch the time frame of this. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Hear this? When did this happen? When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive, what? The adoption of sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, the better rendering of that in in a literal translation would be, the seal of your sonship. This proves you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Same reality being addressed here. Now, this is from the ESV translation of just verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Through God. Now it seems rather obvious that Paul is making the same argument in this portion of Galatians as in Romans 8. However, for me, it seems that to grasp the real weight of it, we have to see the context. And I will only go back a few verses in the chapter 3 to do that, and I trust it will be sufficient for this um, particular lesson, okay? So Galatians chapter 3 starting in verse 21 is the law then against the promises of God. Now this is on the heels. Maybe I won't just go to 21. Let me, let me turn Um, in Galatians. Galatians three. Yeah, let's. Uh, we need to. We may need to back up a little bit further. Okay. Let's start in verse sixteen. Okay. And to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, and he saith not to seed as of many, meaning a multitude of Jews being the seed as they supposed, or or. Yeah, I guess, I suppose. But as of one to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul it, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance, there's, there's the thought here, be of the law, It is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So how would the inheritance actually be received? It can't be received under the law, right? Therefore, if it's received under the law, it can't be grace. It can't be a gift of the grace of God or something that is given by grace, if it's under the law. So this nullifies the thing of saying, the law is a means to partake of this inheritance which the Jews were spouting. They were believing, just like Romans 3, that being a Jew made them special in that they were the people of God to whom the inheritance belonged, to whom all the promises belong. And he's saying, no, first of all, there's a singular subject to those promises, a singular object, a, singular, uh, a singularity to those promises, meaning they were only given to one seed and that is Christ himself. So a multitude of Jews who are circumcised, the multitude of Jews who are obeying the law perfectly in their flesh cannot claim an inheritance because they were under the law being good law-observant Jews. No, because that's not how the inheritance is received. The law being involved actually makes the receiving of the inheritance an impossibility. We're going to show you why. This is important. For if the inheritance be the be of law, it is no more of promise, meaning it can't be something promised and provided, it can't be something given. Remember what we read in Romans 4, this, this goes hand in glove with it, that The man Abraham could not, because of his age, actually bring forth the promised seed. Him and his wife, he was too old, his wife was barren, so he had to finally come to understand that the God who made that promise was not looking for him to be able to perform it, but the God who made the promise was the only one who could perform the promise meaning he's the only one that can make it happen. Man, in all of his uh, well-intended, zealous efforts, could not make it happen. God, God orchestrated the thing so that that would be true. He orchestrated it so it was impossible, so that the possibility would lie only in the power of God. And that's what this is talking about. This is not by the observance of law, where you get it because you did it. This is by the power of God bringing into us by promise, by grace, something we could not in ourselves attain ever at all. That's what we're talking about. Now, he goes on. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serves the law. Why is there a law then? It was added because of transgressions until the seed. It was, it, was a, it was brought in because of transgressions. Why? Because of Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. So what did the law do? It kept us subject to the impossibility that is made evident due to the corruptibility of the men under that law. The weakness of flesh, there's the whole thing, but it kept us, it subjected us. It continually condemned us because it condemned man who was under the headship of Adam because under Adam, all are sinners. Therefore the law condemned sin, but it also prophesied the coming of the seed himself and kept before the eyes of those who were under it, even when they didn't understand it, that there is a seed coming in whom all of these blessings, all of these promises, the inheritance itself will be received. But while under this system, it is an impossibility. Okay? It can't happen. So the law kept them as sinners until the seed, should come to whom the promise was made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a middleman or a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. We'll talk. That's that's something for another time. We, that's a beautiful thing. Therefore, let's start in verse twenty-one where we were in the notes. Is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus might be given to them that believe. You see that? That's why the law was given, to conclude all under sin, to say you are all in sin and death under the headship of of Adam, and you need to be redeemed. You need to be delivered. You need to be set free from this bondage. You need to be brought under the headship of another man. You need to be married to another, and he's coming. Um, That's what the law did. But the scripture concluded all under sin so that the promise by faith, not by law, might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, Now, he is basically personifying faith. Why? Because when we're talking about faith in this context of these verses, we're not talking about just, you know, the faith we have. We're talking about faith being Abraham's faith in its totality, the whole fulfillment of the faith of Abraham embodied in one man, the seed himself. That's what we're talking about. And before that faith came, we were kept, that's in protective custody, under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. First the natural, afterwards, the spirit. That word afterwards is always pointing to the new, pointing to the new covenant, the new life, all of it. In these verses, Paul is beautifully demonstrating the time frame that was actually parenthetical in nature. It was a temporary age, the law, the giving of the law, that pointed to the coming of a time in which what lacked in the first was sufficiently provided. In the coming of faith, everything that was before faith is now sufficiently provided. That is conveyed in this phrase. If there had been a law that could have given, the law couldn't give. The law could command, demand, and condemn, but it couldn't give anything. Had no power as a source of any spiritual benefit. Now in verse 22, we're confronted again with this imprisonment that was demonstrated by the law. The law did not create the internal prison of sin, but it did expose the depth of that captivity. But it was, the law's office was unto the promise being given to all that might believe. Verse 23, what we've been reading, verse 23, merely bears down on that point by showing the law, holding us in custody until the faith, again, The faith of Abraham, the seed in whom all would be blessed, should now be revealed. This is the coming of the one in which Abraham's faith, which is in effect before the law, and could not be nullified by the law, would now be concluded. This is the one who concluded Abraham's faith. But until he came, we were under the law. And remember, we've previously read, under the law, no inheritance. There's a moment in time where the inheritance is an impossibility to receive as long as that age still exists. As long as the law is still in effect, you cannot receive the promise. But he goes on. Verse 24. Wherefore, the law was what? Our schoolmaster, a tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we're no longer, listen to that, no longer under a schoolmaster. You hear that? Now that faith is come, after it's come, and this coming of faith was not about anything but the receiving of salvation, the receiving of life, being redeemed, being brought from under sin, which the law concluded all men to be under. That's what this is all about. We're no longer under a schoolmaster. We're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the words, the law was a schoolmaster. A schoolmaster is a vital picture here. It's a beautiful analogy. A schoolmaster was a child attendant, okay? He looked after the child, he took the child to school until the child was finally of age. To no longer need him. You hear that? Until he was not needed any longer, he was still under that system. There was a point in time, a time set in which the child was no longer in need of the child attendant or the child supervisor. Those under the law This is from um, one of our commentaries. Those under the law were under a schoolmaster until faith came. Paul here is obviously speaking of Christ as the subject of faith that has come. He's also showing that to receive the person of faith is the means of a sure deliverance from the bondage of law. And he is also the means to come to the time appointed, which releases the subject from the need of a guardian. Paul is stating that Abraham's faith is fulfilled in the seed who is the embodiment of faith, the promise realized in person. And to be born of that seed, that one singular seed, is to be partakers of the end of Abraham's faith, which is the same as him writing, in Christ we are blessed with faithful Abraham blessed in thee shall be all the nations so that those of faith are blessed with the faithful Abraham blessed in thee are all nations now let's look up a couple there's these are a couple of uh, commentaries talking about the the schoolmaster and his office according to the etymology of the word the word is actually designated as a child leader was usually a slave who was designated to take care of the child, a boy about 6 to 16 years of age. He was not a teacher. In fact, this is distinguished from a teacher. He is actually just a supervisor or disciplinarian of a child as long as he is underage enough to need that supervision. The law is here um, pedagogical. Trained us with a view, but we are in a way kept in custody, protective custody. That's what the law did. That's that's the whole point of the law. Since faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian. Paul not only characterizes the ne- negative aspect of the law and its enslaving function, he also makes it clear the temporary nature of it. Because there's a moment where that schoolmaster is no longer needed. What is that moment? when that child comes to full age, when that child is of an age where it's no longer a minor. Okay, and we're gonna talk about that. That's the, that's the important part here. The schoolmaster is also a supervisor of the life and the morals of boys belonging to the better class. Again, but it's a slave that is taking that kind of care of them. Um, He's appropriately used with kept in ward or shut up, whereas to understand it is equivalent to a teacher introduces an entirely foreign meaning. It's not a teacher, he's just a supervisor in disciplinary. Word here, he watched over the outward behavior, took charge over him whenever he went from home, for instance, to school. Furthermore, the metaphor of a uh, schoolmaster seems to have grown out of the word kept or to guard. Thus, the word refers to a guardian of a child in its minority when it's a minor, rather than the inferiority, um, oh, sorry, rather than a teacher or schoolmaster. Paul is emphasizing both the inferiority of the law to grace and the temporary character of the law. The law was therefore the guardian of Israel, keeping watch over those committed to its care. Listen how he does this. He talks about Israel keeping watch over those committed to its care, accompanying them with its commandments and prohibitions, keeping them in a condition of dependence and restraint, and continually revealing to them sin as transactional or a positive transgression. Now, Notice how he puts Israel in this category of those who are under the schoolmaster. That's what we're going to talk about. But he's going to distinguish between those under that age and those who are in Christ. And this is where the confusion comes in. Um, let, me, uh, let me just read what I, what I wrote here. What is present here? is that while under the law, under that supervisory system, they were under a supervisor that would that was employed by God to keep them in a custody that would only cease when they had reached the maturity or come to the time where manhood was recognized. I would like to say had reached of a full age, an age that permitted their partaking of the shared inheritance that was intended. Paul will say, after faith has come, we are no longer under the supervisor hired for our discipline and our keeping. Notice faith, this faith is the faith by which we are justified saved. It is the faith we are speaking of as our justification being born again when we are justified by the by the blood through faith. This is when the man who is of such faith and believing, loses the need of a child assistance because in the receiving of Christ or the receiving of Abraham's faith in the person of the seed, we come to that full age, the moment where we are deemed capable of partaking of the promise, promised inheritance of all spiritual blessings, being blessed with faithful Abraham. All right. Now, let's continue on in Galatians 3. This is important stuff. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, he begins to talk to them as now recipients of this faith, as those who have come no longer under the need of a teacher or, better said, a disciplinarian, a tutor, a governor, or someone to hold them under supervision. You are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Oh, I think I'm repeating that, you know, there is no, you know, if, if, and if Christ, if you be Christ, verse 29, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, look at this. Why? Because by faith they have come up under the need or they no longer have a need of a schoolmaster. They've been delivered from that need by faith, by receiving the seed, who is the end of Abraham's faith. Therefore, they're no longer under the law. They're not under the law. Because under the law, is impossible to receive such an inheritance. But in Christ, they are heirs according to the promise. Now, this is important. If you be Christ, Abraham said, heirs according to the promise. Now, as we transition into chapter 4, so many, including me, in past taken this verse and immediately related it to the next verse. So we assume that Paul is speaking concerning those that he just called heirs according to the promise. But now in chapter four, begins to actually take them and decry their lack of understanding and how that lack causes them to forfeit their inheritance. But if we just for a moment would step back and take a look at all of this in the context of what we have already read and what comes after, I think we can see it clearly. In the verses which make up chapters three and four, we're seeing Paul continue to make the same contrast as he has made throughout this letter. But we have to keep before us that he is making this contrast. If the contrast does not guide us, then we're easily missing. we will misunderstand his point. And fall fail to realize the dramatic division that is taking place in Christ. I'm going to read some excerpts here from the critical international critical commentary, which is written by SR driver A. Plummer and C.A. Briggs. You've, you've heard of the uh, driver Briggs, Brown driver Briggs commentary, they helped write that as well. This is a really good. Um, commentary in these verses. And I want to read to you verse 1 of chapter 4. He's just said in verse 29 of chapter 3, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's telling them something that's sure, something real, based upon their by faith receiving Christ. And then in verse... 1 of chapter 4, now I say, the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And then we get to where we've already read. And that's why I say keep in mind the time frame that he's addressing in chapter, in verse 3 and 4. We need to discuss this. is important from the international critical commentary he says this is him transitioning from chapter 3 to chapter 4 in Galatians this commentary the heading of this this is in page 210 of the commentary that I have and the heading of this section is the continuation of the argument for the inferiority of the condition under the law with the use of the illustration of guardianship. Now, listen to this. Look at what he said. Look at this. This is a headache. Beautiful. Beautiful. It, it, because what we have done with this is we have not said, okay, now he goes back and begins to s- describe how under the, under the inferiority of the law, they are still like slaves because they're still children. Because we're getting into the guardianship, again, the schoolmaster situation where you are under that rule and that supervision and that discipline until you come to a full age or an age where you are mature enough to receive a promise and no longer need that supervision. We see? And what we have done, we've done such a disservice by bringing the believer, because of the end of chapter three, bring the believer into that and say, see this, you are an heir, but not really, not completely. We give it and then we take it. We give it to them and we take it away. Why? Because we say, until you understand this fully and you're not stupid like a little child, you don't really understand anything and you're just as big a servant as you've ever been. That's not true. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is saying, here's what you have. You are heirs according to the promise because you've received the seed to whom the promises were made. And then he goes back in chapter 4 and says, but those who were appointed to be heirs, those to whom this thing was actually given first, to whom it all belonged first, they were under an age, a time frame, a law that made the acquisition of the inheritance an impossibility. Just like a child who's so such still a minor is in, in or incapable of receiving the inheritance that is intended for him, but he can't receive it until he's of a mature age of to a full age. This is what he goes back and begins to explain. Because if not, what he's going to say in verses three and four makes no sense. Makes no sense. Now, let's go on with what he said. Again, the heading over this, as he transitioned from chapter three to chapter four, is continuation of the argument for the inferiority of the the condition under the law with the use of the illustration of guardianship or schoolmaster or tutor or governor, same thing. So he goes, still pursuing his purpose of persuading the Galatians that they would lose and not gain by putting themselves under the law. Paul compares the condition under the law, listen to that, to that of an heir who is placed under a guardian for a fixed period of time by the father and in that time has no freedom of action and describes it as a bondage under the elements of the age, the world, the age. Over against this, he sets forth the condition into which they are brought by Christ as that of sons of God living in a filial and joyous fellowship with God. Let me read it again. I say, the heir as long as he is a child Differs nothing from a servant. Why would you go back to that system? Because that system did not bring them the inheritance. That system of the law, being under that system was not a means by which they could partake of the blessings that you have received in Christ. Why would you go back under that? Why would you be circumcised again? Why would you go under the system that says touch not, taste not, handle not, as if it's going to give you any benefit spiritually at all? because it didn't benefit those who were under it. Remember what Paul says at the very end, I think, of this chapter. He said those who were under such things didn't benefit from them at all. Eating certain foods, it benefited none of them. Why? Because it didn't give the life it talked about. It didn't bring forth the full end that that it prophesied. Only the coming of faith did. So he goes on um Galatians 4 though the argument induced in in verse 3 our chapter 3 verse 23 was brought to a conclusion in verse 29 with a conversion to the thought of 37 the apostle now takes up again the thought of the inferiority of the condition under the law so he takes it up again He's not continuing for verse 29. He's taking up again a brand, an old argument that he had made earlier in chapter three. You have to remember this is the same condition of Paul in Romans seven. So he is again taking up the thought of the inferiority of the condition under the law and availing himself of the familiar customs of guardianship. He compares the condition of those under the law to that of an heir who is still in his youth and is still a minor until the time appointed by the father. Through prospective owner of the whole estate, or though prospective owner of the whole estate, he is yet subject to guardians, and he is characterized as a slave. The sting of the argument is that he differs nothing from a slave, and we have been speaking about that enslavement throughout this which he employs to describe the condition of those under the law. So you hear how he's he's always qualifying that. Differentiating this argument from what he's just told the Christians who believe that they have received. It is persuasive element is unto the time appointed of the father, which suggests that the time of slavery, listen, has gone by and men can and ought now to be free the very freedom that Paul is speaking of in Romans 8. The law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's a present freedom that we can now enjoy. He doesn't rip it away by saying you can enjoy it if you know it all. He's saying you in, it is yours now. It is yours now. sons of God instead of slaves or servants. Let's remember Romans 8, for as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. We talked about it. Those who are led by the Spirit, the word led there means to be led to the goal or led to a specific destination, not led around in circles or led here and yonder. It is to be led to a specific conclusive end. That's the sons of God. That's the heirs. We who are now partakers of the spirit of adoption have been taken a hold of by the spirit and have been brought to the goal unto which the schoolmaster was bringing us. Therefore, we've come to the place where we are no longer under the need of such supervision and discipline. We are heirs. We have come to the full age. We've come to the age's fullness. We have come from children to the man. Remember Paul saying that? When I was a child, I thought I was a child, but when I became a man, I put away the childish things. He's talking about the things of the law, the things of the first. When he became a man, that means a full age, partaker now of the intended perfect reality. It all comes down to this statement, if you are Christ and your Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. To further understand this, we have to see this in reference to the statement, not seeds as of many, but to the seed who is Christ. Thus, Paul is showing that these are partakers of the inheritance and Abraham's seed because they're in Christ, the seed of God. And to receive the intended fullness, we must receive it in the seed whose coming was promised and anticipated by the law, which kept the promise made until that coming. Now, we proceed in chapter four, and unfortunately, these verses are not interpreted in reference to this continual contrast. Many, as I once did, believe that Paul continues the thought in the final verse of chapter three. And we somehow think that Paul is discussing the plight of those in Christ who are heirs, but do not have sufficient understanding regarding that state. However, this is not the case. Paul is stating that the believer, the heir in Christ is under the schoolmaster. He is not stating that until they're mature. This is, this. it makes no sense, not in the context of it. Because you'll see further down that the condition of the child is not remedied except in the coming of the Son. Paul is not continuing this argument about a believer being without understanding and thus under the law. He's demonstrating that those who are in Christ have received the thing that those under the law could never attain or were not capable due to their infancy because it could only be received in the seed. To Go to the law to find the inheritance was foolish for those under the law were not even qualified for such an inheritance or in such fullness. Qualified means in the Son. There is a, in Colossians, it said that He is the one who qualifies us to be partakers of the inheritance in light. He qualifies us out by bringing us into the Son who is the Heir Himself. While in the laws, under the law, those who were meant to be the heirs were incapable of actually receiving the inheritance until faith. They were still not capable of to be recipients of the inheritance because they were not yet mature or full age. How, how did that happen? By faith receiving the seed. Being in him. The whole point. Galatians 4.3, even so we, when we were children, We're in bondage under the elements of the world. Once again, let me read from the International Critical Commentary. He goes on and he says, this is better understood to now be referring to Christians generally, the predicates of the sentence describing the pre-Christian condition. Though the language of three through five, verses three through five, is specifically appropriate to Jewish Christians and was probably written with them specifically in mind, as that, Verse 6 is written probably with Gentile believers in mind, yet the use listen to this, of the same, of the equivalent expressions with reference to those who are included under the first person and those addressed in the second person, where there is no distinction, remember um, Romans 3, for there is no difference, all have sinned and come short, it's the same thing being said here just in grammatical language there is no distinction really in the difference between first and second person, but on the contrary, continuity of reference is required by the argument showing that these grammatical changes do not make a substantial change of persons denoted. Jews and Gentiles are therefore classed together as being before the coming of Christ in the state of childhood and in bondage to The religion of the Jews. The Jews possessing the law is classed with that which the Gentile possessed who were not under the law. You see, they're all the same. That was the whole chapter 1 and 2 and 3 of Romans. That's what it all said. You're all the same no matter what you claim. You're under the law, you're not. Commentary then goes on to reference Romans chapter 2 verses 12 through 15 for as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just before god but the doers shall be justified for when the gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law these have not the law they are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness the thoughts and means while it's accusing or else excusing one another. I believe it can be seen in Romans 3, 22 through 23, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no antithetical quality between the two, for all have sinned. No difference in Adam or in Christ. It is the same equality that we have addressed before, where no matter when you came in, you received the same thing. We're equal in sin and we're equal in righteousness. Now, Paul will now demonstrate that when the time frame fixed of the Father came about, this is where we have to understand who we're talking about, the context. This is again, I hope, I hope you're understanding what I'm saying. When did the fixed time of the Father come about? When were those now who believe able to be released from the need of a guardian to the, be released from the bondage and imprisonment of such supervision to receive the possession? Of the inheritance, look at it. See when he's talking about. It's not talked about right now those in Christ. Here's when the time of minority came to its conclusion. But when the fullness of the time—that's the time appointed of the Father—the time whose end coming would 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 allow the minor under the supervision of tutors and governors to come to an end to receive the promise when the fullness of the time was come i have read this many times even so we were children were under bondage under the elements of the world and verse two under tutors and governors of the time appointed father and i've heard people actually say that still pertains to us today And many of them want to make tutors and governors your fathers in the faith and your prophets and apostles. And you're under their tutelage and under their supervision until the time appointed of the Father. But it never becomes the time appointed of the Father. It becomes the time where they deem necessary. And that time seems to never come. <laughs> that never, never seems to happen. Verse 4. I mean, yeah, verse four. When the fullness of the time was come, when was it? When was the time of fullness where the maturity came, where the time of the, the, the minority of that age came to its end? God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. When was that? That was his first coming. Why did he come? To redeem them that were under the law, under that age of minority that they might receive the adoption of sons. And because we are sons, or the thing that proves that sonship, or the thing that proves that we're no longer minors, but are now sons who are capable of receiving the inheritance promise, is that God has sent forth the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that's the spirit of adoption that we have now received the spirit of life that has made us free from the law, sin, and death. All of these things, being under the law, sin, and death, being under the body of sin, these are all declarations of being under a system of minority, of infancy, a time that would not permit, a state that would not permit such an inheritance to be received. How do you receive it? By faith. By being found in the seed and the seed being made unto you all the spiritual blessings and benefits and riches of that inheritance. To go back to the law to find it was a ludicrous idea because those under the law were not capable of actually receiving the thing they thought they were able to receive and told others they were able to receive under it. Because they were still, as those under that age, that system, that administration, not yet a full age. Why? Because the seed himself, the man to whom the whole thing was given, to whom every promise and declaration was made, he hadn't come yet. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Again, reiterating the thing he ended, chapter 3. With. We have to make sure we pay close attention to this timeline. This is a vital part of this. The time on which we could confer the that he would confer the promised blessings of the inheritance. Um, Jameson Fawcett Brown says the fullness of the time is namely the appointed time of the father it is the end of all preparation and the beginning of all fulfillment I can say it is the end of all preparation because it is the fulfillment time uh, this is again from Adam Clark the time which god in his infinite wisdom can t- counted best in which all his counsels were filled up the time which his spirit by the prophets had specified and the time to which he intended the mosaic institutions should uh, the time to which he uh, intended the mosaic institutions should extend and beyond which they should be of no avail Beyond him, there is no need for it. See, this is about coming from the age of testimony to the one who fulfills that testimony. That's what this is about. And the ignorance of trying to go back to those shadows to try to find anything substantial. That's what he's saying. Those of us who have received this spirit of adoption need nothing more need nothing more because the very proof that we have come to the time of maturity that we are no longer minors is the fact that the spirit of adoption is in us crying out a father and instituting in our soul constituting in our soul a relationship that we could not in ourselves attain Paul continues this, and this is why Paul continues this by saying, God, forth, God sent forth his son to deliver those under the law. Then he brings this to the believer, having received the spirit of adoption, who is in us crying, Abba Father, determining a relation, a fellowship, a sonship with God. And it's important that we understand the words Abba Father are strategically used as well. The word Abba is a Hebrew word for daddy or father, and the word father is the Greek. So he is showing that Hebrew and Greek, or Greek and Jew, or Gentile and Jew, both are covered in this one indwelling relationship of the spirit of adoption, crying out, a Father. He brings into the soul a one relationship that covers Jew and Gentile. That's it. This is exactly the message Paul has communicated in Romans 8. Fitting in with all previous chapters, he now encourages them in God, having changed their state of being from bondage to the liberty of the sons of God. Because as we go on in chapter 8, he's about to show how God utilized the law to subject all men, Jew and Gentile, under it to their own emptiness and unfruitfulness, So that in the coming of the one hoped for the faith of Abraham realized the seed to whom all the promises were made, they may in him enjoy the true liberty of the sons of God, the freedom of being found in him, having nothing of our own, except what he has made unto us by faith and through grace. So I hope this has helped you. I hope it's kind of clarified the whole thing. Um, of um, this transition from chapter three to chapter four Galatians and showing you it's not talking about you have it now you don't because you don't understand it. you're still a child in understanding yes there are verses where Paul calls them children in understanding but this is not one of them this is not what he's talking about he's speaking of an age of infancy, a time frame that did not permit men to be partakers of an inheritance, why, because the time had not come, the appointed time of the father said, "Now you're capable and able to receive this now you're of the full age. He had to wait on the son who was of full age, the perfect man, the man of full stature, to come, and now those who have received him are now partakers of such a wonderful inheritance blessed with all spiritual blessings in him, the beloved of God. I hope this has helped you guys. Um, Again, don't forget our conference. Uh, Let us know if you have any questions about it. Love you. See you next time.